I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to be talking about The Crown and Netflix's refusal to add a disclaimer at the beginning of each episode. Peacock subscriber numbers and HBO Max's, or I guess Warner Bros. decision to have all of its films premiere day and date on HBO Max when they open in theaters and some other stuff. Are movies bad? Our TV's good. I bought a 65-inch TV. It but is very good. Is at, at that size, is that a TV anymore, or is it a movie screen? Is it a movie? I'm, it is frightening how big it is. I am constantly, like, I get scared when I see it out of the corner of my eye, and I'm just like, what is that? That's not a television. It is a millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Netflix is doubling down on not adding a disclaimer to episodes of The Crown, deeming it a quote-unquote work of fiction. Uh, We wrote about this for the site. Libby, do you have any thoughts on uh, Netflix's decision to essentially tell uh, the firm, as it were, to bugger off? I, wow, that's, that's... It's a great way to put that, Leo. Uh, I love it. Um, I think it's it's hilarious because The Crown is a fictional account of uh, real things that happen. They have the right to take creative license. I do think it gets it gets a little dicey when you're talking about people who are still alive and uh, still trying to do their jobs. Um, Youch. Yeah. No. I feel like I I and I I I am weirdly empathetic to people who have who have suddenly been impassioned about uh, Prince Charles and, and Camilla, um, despite all of this taking place 40 years ago. But also it's a television show, uh, it's fiction. If you start needing fiction warnings at the beginning of all of your fiction to assert that they aren't reality, feels like a problem. I personally think they should have a disclaimer before This Is Us just because they are trying to have uh, a coronavirus, a post-coronavirus timeline, but no one is wearing masks. They're not socially distant. They should say, this This is not the way you should act because people are walking up to each other in masks and getting real close and taking their masks off so you can see their faces. And they should definitely not do that. That requires much, <laughs> that, that means... That is a that is a public health concern. Uh, something the Crown did this season that I don't remember it doing that much in previous seasons was it would have once the episode was over, but before the credits ran, it would have um, like a little informational card. So spoilers on season four of the Crown, um, and spoilers for like royal family history in the in the family line or 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 adjacent to the royals. They had some. Cousins? First, second cousins? Some, Yeah, some second cousins who were uh, mentally challenged, um, uh, who were institutionalized. And in the series, 
it was suggested that that was a choice made to secret them away in order to um, to prevent any question about the weakness in the royal line. Um, that timeline doesn't actually match up to uh, when the women were institutionalized. There is some question of how much the royal family acknowledged them, how much they were aware of them, uh, which is all concerns in their own right. But at the end of the episode, they had this little card uh, with pictures of the real-life women and uh, their birth and death dates, their names. Adding something like that at the end feels like it is grounding. It's crossing the line. It feels like it's grounding what the episode portrayed as truth, as a fact. I've, I discussed this with my wife and she disagrees with me. She sees no problem with it. But in a situation where you are having people interpreting episodes of this show to the extent that they, they don't understand that it is a fictionalized version, to do something like that feels like it, you're muddying the waters unnecessarily. Not to mention that the way that that episode is framed is around Margaret's sort of disillusionment with not being a front and center and sort of like she's the one that discovers it's it's all built into the narrative device of like she needs something to do this becomes her cause celeb and she's the one who fights for it and we have no idea if that's the order of operations right. how we it actually no, happened well, there's no proof to to uh to suggest that that happened in in actuality whatsoever which feels gross because the story is trying to talk about the royal family kind of hiding these people away and now the show is using these women to sort of as a tool to shame the royal family like it's very it's it's very weird and and is something you get into when you're fictionalizing history and i am assuming will get even more complicated as the crown ends its run and gets closer and closer to reality to, to play devil's advocate in the Please. slightest bit, because I, I do I do completely 100% agree that they should not be adding this as a work of fiction to a show like this. I do feel like The Crown, more than many other uh, quote-unquote historical epics or period sure. pieces or um, you know inspired by a true story, what have you, uh, plays into the fact that it is 100% accurate and historically viable. And uh, you can take this as gospel and that like this is the definitive account of of the of the royals in, in Britain. And as someone who is um, you know, very unaware of what the reality is, to say the least, um, I, I am using this as the text of like any sort of reference point when people make that in real life. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that episode of The Crown when they talk about um you know trips to australia or uh you know aberfan abervan aber you said it right you um, said it right That's well i said it three different ways so one of them probably is correct uh but no like i and and to me when i watch the show it does seem pretty clear you know as somebody who, who watches a lot of television and and uh tries to look at it beyond just the the story on the screen it does seem very clear that they're trying to find historical situations to explain how a character came to be like to to get into the emotional and personal backstories and divulge key information about a group of people who are you know very closed off from the world and that's a very effective storytelling technique and that is also something that once you acknowledge it you can say you know okay yeah clearly this is fiction like clearly they could play around with us and, and it gives you some room to, to maneuver um but if you don't 
want to watch it that way. And I do feel like most people who watch it will not watch it that way. All they'll see is this is a story that happened in time. This is one thing. Then they're going to jump forward six months. Then they're going to jump forward two years. Then they're going to jump forward three months. And it's like they're just excerpting things from history and using those because that's the best part. And that's the easier way to see it. So um, so again, I don't support going this far. I uh, I think that adding that as, a, as an act of lunacy when you're dealing with something that's so obviously a scripted, fictionalized television program, um, and it puts us into dangerous territory for everything else that comes out. Um, but, you know, you got to throw devil's advocate in there and see why some people might be upset with uh, oh, the way yeah. it's presented. See, all of that is unthinkable to me because... The Crown is definitely on my list of, and this happens with like every docu-series I, I watch, so it's very kind of similar, dissimilar territory, is like, it's a Wikipedia watch. Like, I absolutely have Wikipedia opening and open, and I'm cross-checking things. I'm like, oh, that's a tweak. Oh, that's interesting. Um, oh, they just skipped Princess Anne's kidnapping attempt um, because it didn't fit in with their larger storyline, which is madness to me because Princess Anne was amazing and she just like refused to be kidnapped and like how do you not put that in the show but um yeah it's uh is Wikipedia watch already a term because if not you just coined it in other clicker news it's been reported that Peacock, the streaming service that NBC Universal launched back in when, Ben? I mean, it did a dual launch because it was exclusively available to Comcast subscribers for a while, I think in April, but then it became accessible to everyone in July. Uh, essentially, they are stating that they are currently up to 26 million subscribers. They do not uh, state whether or not those are all paying or not paying. We assume it's a combination thereof. Uh, as we've mentioned on the podcast previous, there is a free version of Peacock, which is makes what for an interesting it? port. <laughs> well, I just call it free Peacock. No, you don't. Doesn't seem very I mean, you, efficient. Yeah, if someone wanted to, if someone wanted to make a portmanteau of those two words, they could. It's very easy because they have the same sort of rhyme scheme. Two of those oh. words, free rhymes mm. with P. Oh my God! Yeah, the portmanteau. Yeah. <laughs> Put it together. Itself. Yeah, it supports itself. So there are some subscribers that may be free cocking it. And then some. <laughs> I would bet a majority of them are free cock. That's so much worse than just saying free cock. <laughs> and peacock is already a very problematic word, if we're being honest. But one of the reasons we want to talk about this, Ben, is because they, are, they apparently are ahead of their supposed goal you said they're supposed to they're trying to get the 35 million subscribers by 2024 so they're well on their way and probably ahead of whatever metrics they were that they're trying to get there but the big thing we want to talk about is that they're going to get boons soon as some of these licensing agreements start to expire the big one being that the office is going to leave netflix in january and exclusively be on peacock uh, that's that's almost Exactly right. correct. Uh, technically, The Office is going to leave Netflix on December 31st, 2020, and it will show up on Peacock January 1st, 2021. So on New Year's Eve, you can watch The Office on Netflix all the way up until midnight, supposedly. I don't know when the turnover actually is. Um, but then when you wake up the next day and you need to nurse that hangover from your one-person solo party, <laughs> socially distanced, very safe 
uh, you'll have to sub- figure out how to subscribe to Peacock. So um, this, do you think this, it lets you? Do you think that Netflix lets you finish the episode you're in, or does no. it cut off immediately? It's gone. Like I, I don't like think it's, it's going to ne- let you. It's never been there. Right. It'll it'll disappear. And I mean, again, like uh, the fact that that people are starting to access Peacock and use Peacock, um, whether it's for free, whether it's monthly subscriptions, it they've said multiple times it doesn't matter to them. They're very happy with their ad supported revenue source. So like that's that's okay. Like they just need people to use the service. Um, so that people will be able to find the important things as they continue to arrive on Peacock in the years to come. Um, and again, like it, it's this, this subscriber total is more of an excuse to remind everyone that the end of 2020 is, is a big turnover date for a lot of legacy TV that exists on streaming platforms. Uh, the, the year, the deals they make expire uh, they will move to new streaming services and you need to be prepared. Again, as uh, an advocate for uh, physical media, I suggest that if you do actually care this much and need these things in your lives, you should have bought DVDs or Blu-rays of them a long time ago. Um, you should not be relying on a streaming service to find your favorite show, whether it's The Office or The West Wing or any of these other ones that are leaving. But um, again, like if you are a diehard Heart of Dixie fan, be aware that on December 15th, it is not going to be on Netflix anymore. And if you are a, a Nurse Jackie uh, ride or die on December 30th, it's gone. Gossip Girl, gone. West Wing, gone. Dexter, gone. So prepare accordingly. <laughs> is there any other streaming news we could speak about at length? Uh, well, th- now that you mention it, Libby, there was a, a bit of, of news that hit hit the wire last week after we recorded and it sort of made a large contingent of the film world apoplectic about the future <laughs> of uh cinema that seems fair uh it yes sort Warner- of made a large portion <laughs> apoplectic I'm cou- look i'm couching i'm couching i'm couching my statements Hedging. gotta hedge gotta hedge gotta hedge Got ahead. Protect yourself. Uh, Warner Brothers Picture Groups announced last week that its entire 2021 film slate uh, will simultaneously premiere on HBO Max at day and date as it does with its theater premieres, uh, meaning that it'll be available at home as it is in theaters. And everyone lost their minds. I think not is everyone. A, not everyone. You're right. Steven Soderbergh was fine. Steven Soderbergh was fine. He gets it. Uh, Christopher Nolan came out just yesterday and referred to HBO Max as the worst streaming service. I joked on Twitter that he was waiting until Quibi was dead to make that statement. I mean, Uh, (laughs) he couldn't couldn't make it before then. Now, granted, I think we on this podcast disagree. And granted, this was my own clickbait headline, but I did call HBO Max the only streaming must have. HBO Max just has the best library. That's what I'm that's what I'm about. HBO Max. Well, a especially now especially knowing that i'm gonna have access to all of warner brothers new feature films in 2021 how am i not subscribing to hbo max so i guess i want to i already do yeah i guess i want to touch base with you guys about this not that this is a movie podcast this is a television podcast but yeah i wanted to get your guys opinion on this warner news from a, a television standpoint and obviously, I mean, Libby, you already kind of mentioned, like, it, it makes HBO Max even more of a streaming must-have for 2021. 
just in the sense that like if you want to get that amazing back library back catalog you now get these films day and date in your living room hbo max has always been a, a great value for your money we've we've established that on on previous episodes of the podcast um this just deepens that. I know it's not really our place to to comment on the the film the film community's reaction to this, but it it oftentimes what happens is is when the film community reacts to someone, I feel like the TV community's like I don't I don't understand what you're upset about. Um I don't think that this announcement on the on the part of of Warner Brothers is is indicative of theater, movie theaters dying if movie theaters if some movie theaters die out, there is a reason for that. And it's not Warner Brothers fault. Um, I think everyone is just trying to survive through the next 18 months, uh, literally and figuratively. And I think that that the response from a lot of auteur filmmakers uh, can really come across as very elitist, very classist. And it, it, it comes across as an attitude of filming this... Um, untouchable monolith that that cannot be changed it's very much like religious fervor which i've never really understood um for religious fervor's sake so i don't know i i I just see it as um i don't know it's all entertainment and it's streaming sometimes and sometimes it's in a theater and sometimes it's on your phone and sorry and and sometimes it's on your tv like it's I don't know. It's telling that the directors that that have that view are the t- directors that I tend to enjoy uh, all of their work because on a in, in an interview with Eric Cohn uh, about his upcoming series, Barry Jenkins said that like it's all this it's all essentially the same. It's the same tools. It's visual storytelling. There is real no real difference between film and television. And yet, obviously, Soderbergh is like it doesn't matter to me. I was on a Zoom call, and it has to be off the record because I can't say who it is, but a filmmaker was essentially like, I do not care if AMC and all these big chains die. Uh, independent independent theaters will stay stick around. I'll, like We'll make sure that they're there, and there'll be a way for people to see cinema if we need it that way, but like things, things will move on. It's going to change, but that doesn't mean it's going to be bad. Well, and I feel like one of the one of the difficult things for me to reconcile is kind of the the disparity of opinions about what this means and and how it's happened. Um, on, on the one hand, you've got people like Christopher Nolan calling HBO Max the worst streaming service, which uh, again, like I understand, he's just kind of in the heat of the moment and, <laughs> and is really trying to come out and say something. Um, I want but, Christopher Nolan to test out Pluto TV, and he needs to tell me if he thinks Pluto TV is better than HBO Max. To be fair. <laughs> If anything killed movie theaters this year, it's demanding that Tenet be released in them. So they had to open up just for this single film. But I digress. Again, and there's and there's a lot of good reporting on that and kind of the, the cost that it had on the industry side and, and how it affected theaters and everything like that. But again, like I think Nolan is trying to speak more to the fact that the launch of the service went very poorly, or at least is perceived to have gone very poorly, more so than the, the service itself is bad. But at the same time, the way that he talks about it and the emphasis that he has on it is really more about kind of uh, the disconnect that people who love movies uh, and people who love television uh have with each other and in reality most of those people are the same people there's a lot of crossover and that's why hbo max is trying to cater to the consumer 
and give people who love movies the opportunity to watch them without risking their lives in a year when the coronavirus is still going to be, uh, you know, at least a, a threat. So that's that's part of it. Um, the another part of it is just what it means for theaters, which is something I'm not going to pretend to understand. I, there's been a lot of damaging things that have been done to theaters well before Warner Brothers, Warner Media, and HBO Max got involved in next year's planning session for their own, you know, personal, well, professional business interests. Um, so again, like that, that feels like it's kind of own separate conversation. But you, I see people talk about this in terms of the service, and they really don't know how to talk about it. And when I say people, I do mean usually people who cover film more than they cover television. And I think this is where we really have to try to come together, at least in terms of reporting. Because if you have an expertise in streaming, then I think you have a much better grasp of what this means going forward for the service and for the company than if you are predominantly covering things from a box office theatrical standpoint. This is a huge help for HBO Max. This is something that HBO Max uh, obviously needs to try to court a group of consumers and to compete head on with Netflix, who is, you know, literally at this moment saying that they're releasing a new movie every week of December until the end of the year as a way to be like, you have to stay subscribing to Netflix. We've got all the good stuff right now. HBO Max can now counter that and say, we have a blockbuster must-see event picture coming at least once a month throughout the next year. So like you have to now subscribe to us. But the disconnect is I've seen a lot of people saying that HBO Max had to do this because they lack the must-see originals that say Disney Plus had with The Mandalorian, which is just objectively false. HBO Max has all of the HBO originals. HBO Max has every HBO show. Whether or not you want to call it an HBO show or an HBO Max show, it does not matter. What matters is the where it's being provided to people and what they pay their money to access it on, and that is HBO Max. So that service has plenty of must-see original content. They've, they've had it the entire time. Their problem has specifically been the rollout and the accessibility, and they are trying to overcome that early kind of, you know, hiccup, whatever you want to call it, however seismic you want to uh, call the launch problems that they've experienced and the branding problems they've experienced. They're trying to correct that by making it very clear what they have to offer and why you need to access it. And that kind of move will not only help them gain subscribers, which is their number one motivation, but it will also help them uh, with their continued negotiations with Roku. It will help give them leverage in those kind of conversations where they're trying to put HBO Max on more services and make it more accessible you know, to everybody in North America, I assume. Um, and, and that's really essential. And whether or not this is a viable business strategy to put all of your eggs into the streaming service basket and say, we're going to forego a lot of theatrical revenue uh, either in for one year or potentially beyond one year, even though they adamantly say that this is only a one-year experiment. Um, that's a question that I don't think anyone really has an answer to. We had plenty of people trying to say that Netflix was going to fail year after year after year when they were investing billions and billions of dollars into original content. And so far, that has proven incorrect. They have succeeded. They have They have done exactly what they've reached out to do. So to say that um, another company that is trying to become a direct competitor with that, with that service and make that kind of money when HBO was trying to talk about making $7 billion a year as opposed to, you know, Netflix trying to make $30 billion a year, when you're going after those kind of numbers, 
it's it's not up to me to say whether or not that's this is a viable strategy. What's what I can tell you is whether or not this is a good strategy to lure consumers for the thing you're trying to get them to do, and it absolutely is. Um, I will. I greatly miss theaters. I love going to the theaters. I never want them to go away. I do think they're going to be fine in general, and people will have access to them, and there will be good movies in them. And and once it's safe to go, we'll all be able to return, and that'll be okay. But I don't have the same attachment in the sense of like the only way to see this movie is by going to the theater. The most important thing is you seeing the art. The most important thing is you having access to the art. And the most important thing for any filmmaker, first and foremost, should be that people want to watch your work. It shouldn't be they can only watch it here, that there's only an exclusivity to this area. They should just be excited that anyone wants to engage with what you've created because that's the artistic credo like that's that should be your number one priority at all times so uh that's that's a long rambling take over a lot of issues i've seen crop up uh, with the coverage as well as the reaction to this hbo max news i just feel like it's going to blend our two once divided bodies much closer together than they ever have been, even though people have been saying that the line between TV and film was obliterated long ago. I mean, I get it. I, I get that reluctance to change. Uh, I remember when TV was making the transition to streaming. I mean, there are still critics who are are mad that they don't get discs in the mail so they can put them in their DVD player and watch them on their TV like God intended. But you know what? We have to adapt because... The, the technology is is adapting the delivery systems are adapting and it's not great it's not always fun it's not always comfortable but it's not going to stop um i think that anonymous filmmaker leo had a great point like this things have changed like like even breaking out of the studio system all of those years ago like that was a huge change i am sure there are people then who said that it was the end of theater uh, of of film it's not the end. It's just a new beginning of something else. And yeah, you can look back and you can cling to the way that things were, but that's gotten us into a lot of trouble before. And I'm not sure that's definitely the way we want to move forward. People are, you know, asking, you know, how is this? Is this the end of film? Is this the end of the theatrical experience? Uh, it seems like, again, like such a short-sighted and such an insane argument to make that to make that statement when it's very clear that movies are more in demand than ever. Like for a while, people saw the streamers themselves as the threat to movie making because they were like, oh, people just want serialized content. They just want something that they can stay in for hours and hours and hours. And movies are too short to deliver that. That has proven false as well. That's why Netflix invested as much as they did in original movies. That's why people continue to invest in libraries of movies because people want access to those. They want to be able to watch a two hour thing instead of a 10 hour thing, you know, on different nights of the week. So when movies are as in demand as they are right now for people to be saying that anything is ending in relation to how people want to see them just seems insane to me. And again, like the specifics of the business side of it, the specifics of, is it viable to make a $250 million movie to release on a streaming service? I don't know the answer to that. And again, it's very hard for me to, 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 even imagine those numbers in my head. But what I do know is that people want those movies and they're going to keep making them because people demand them. So I, I just, I, 
I, I the supply and demand simplicity of it seems to be something that people overlook as well. And I, I just it I don't know. Anyway. You know, I tossed this accusation out earlier and, and I don't wanna get I, I don't wanna do that without stating my case and I um I do want to talk about it a little bit, but there is this idea that not being able to see a movie in a theater somehow takes away from the experience. But if they were really worried about that, then they would have reined in the the amount of inflation that happens in movie theaters. Ten years ago, I worked as a theater uh, a manager in a movie theater, and I would see these families come out because they wanted to see Minions or they they wanted to see the new Transformers film, and they were spending well over a hundred dollars just to get their entire family into the movie that doesn't count uh that that doesn't even take into consideration like the amount that they were spending uh at the concession stand for you know paying directly into the um theater chain's pocket like you're talking about preserving something that was increasingly and increasingly uh only affordable for people in a certain socioeconomic class and that's that's not okay. Streaming is much more accessible. You know, if I spend $15 on HBO Max, that's still less than I would pay for one adult movie ticket in Los Angeles. And I get all of their programming. Like, there is just something that is lost. And, and it feels like people don't always perceive that. They don't always understand why that is, is so much more appealing than, you know, trying to stuff all your kids in the car and and go to the theater well i think i think that's why it's important right now again and why i get hung up on a lot of the way on on a lot of the coverage that comes out and a lot of the discussion that comes out because it turns into this this conversation of of um you know elitism and and film versus tv and where are the lines and all that and i i don't think that matters as much as again like trying to figure out the best ways to make the best art accessible to the most people and uh as somebody who grew up 45 minutes away from the closest theater and we drive hour and a half round trip to see them and spend the money that it cost not only on gas but you know at times when it was you know six feet of snow outside and we're questioning whether or not we'll even be able to make it to the theater and still trying to go obviously there is a love and a passion for that experience like you said there are still opportunities and and there are films that you want to do that i've gone back to see et in the theater i've seen lawrence of arabia multiple times in the theater i you know i've i've seen uh the third man on a on a like one of those explodable uh prints um it was incredible and it, it was a once in a lifetime experience those aren't going to go away people aren't going to stop wanting to see films in theaters there will be opportunities it's just these things were already happening before we were we were in this place independent independent film was having trouble getting distribution the 30 million dollar like sort of relationship picture has all but disappeared like rom-coms are non-existent and and have been shuffled off to hallmark you know these changes are happening and i think streaming solves a lot more problems than it creates not to belabor the point but i think it, it goes back to the main thing that like change is not inherently bad in fact it's probably good and like any of these changes are probably going to improve not only the experience of those viewer, the viewers that go into theaters or watch at home, but also whatever business decisions the actual studios or distributors make. Like, I think it's it's change is tough and people are so used to a certain thing. But if you're going to charge people, if you're going to charge a family of five, $100 plus concessions to go see a movie, you have to figure out a reason why it's worth $100. And that's going to make 
their experience better, but it's also going to make sure that you're, you still survive. And I fucking hate change. So I get it. <laughs> yeah. like I, I do. Like at a like core in my bones level, I don't want to change anything ever. I don't like changing my clothes. Uh, I don't like leaving my apartment anymore. Like I don't like it. I like being comfortable and I like things being consistent, but that's not how you thrive. That's not how you live. So um, pre-pandemic, it was all moving this way. Uh, aside from yeah. the massive blockbusters that were sort of propping up box office, box office was dwindling and you had streaming was, we all knew streaming was coming. Like this year was like the year that everything fucking launched. And like, it, it would like, it was a tidal wave because everyone was moving this direction. Regardless of pandemic, all these things were going to launch this year pre-pandemic. I have a question. Uh, can anything beat Dune at the Emmys? <laughs> <laughs> I think, and again, like, I'll be, I'll be getting into this shortly next week. Uh, well, I'll be getting into this next week uh, for quite a few words, uh, lengthy post. But I think that's that's kind of the only arena in which this conversation really matters anymore. I, I already did the piece about how there aren't any TV movies anymore. There's just movies. I think that the discussion of what is film and what is television, uh, the way it's usually held is is pointless. I think what matters is looking at what's the best way to tell a story. Um, and then, you know, when those things inevitably compete in our in our year-end lists and and uh, prestigious awards, that's when the categorization matters because if things are competing against each other that aren't the same thing, that's where things get really tricky. So the idea of of episodes of something competing as movies is a problem when it comes to awards. But when you're just talking about people watching it, I don't give a shit what you call it. I don't give a shit how you see it. I mean, we've all made the arguments that the the best movie I saw last year was the Colgate ad uh, during the Super Bowl commercial, which is not a real ad. I'm just making something up. Don't Google that. The best movie of it's all time is terrible. the Folgers ad where the siblings want to have sex with each other. <laughs> there you go. Like, th- those are fine. Like, whatever whatever fun way your mind wants to kind of Libby's break not it on down board. is okay. <laughs> The, the problem for me is that when you start um, when you start comparing things against each other and they don't they shouldn't be compared and the work that goes into them is completely different and Libby made a great illustration of this very simply in this week's new rules for the Emmys that came down uh, where with variety talk and variety sketch being lumped into the same category that's the opposite of what needed to happen like we needed we already had a problem in which the variety talk shows that were weekly were competing against variety talk shows that are nightly and those are very different different formats it's it's pretty close to the argument of saying drama series you know on on broadcast that had to make 23 episodes a year competing against something that made six episodes uh you know those, those aren't really trying to do the same thing those are very different mediums and that's when you get into trouble is, is when you start comparing those two. But as long as people are watching them, as long as it's good and people want to support that, that's the real thing that matters. It's just when the awards get into it and they're starting to try to honor things and then they have to exclude things because of very arbitrary and misguided rules that we get into trouble. Right, right. I think awards ruin things because, I mean, you're right. Like, I think all of us would agree that Lemonade probably should have won an Oscar and at the end it- and a, a Grammy. Um, 
because it was just perfect. But like, like there, there are just, um, it is just awards. And like, I don't want to get in arguments with people. I don't, I don't want to get in arguments with people about whether something is a film or TV. But because my title is TV Awards Editor, I have to get into those arguments. Like, that's my business. Like, um, it is never from an artistic point of view, really. It's about trying to have as level a playing field as possible. Art is art, and it's all great. I mean, you know that's not true, but artistic <laughs> expression is all great uh, and not necessarily better than. Um, I mean, it's just to my, about to my own how... theory, television has never been better and film has never been better. Both things are getting better. But which is better than the other? Neither. They're both the same thing. They're the same thing. It's like saying, essentially... Whatever's newest. It's essentially, this is a bad yeah. analogy, but... Commercials are better. Commercials are the best. You're right. Commercials are the best. Advertising, capitalism. Advertising is the best. Uh, it's the shortest and the best. That's what I learned from Mad Men. <laughs> no, but the, the point, and I was actually going to use this analogy when talking about why, why, there's less, uh, why there's less awards at... Why they're combining awards as opposed to creating more. Because the idea is should, we shouldn't have an award for best fruit. We should have an award for best apple or like best variant of red apple versus best variant of green apple like you we want to we want to sort of prop as many great things up as we can as opposed to like like windling down how how many awards we give out well i mean exactly but also uh that's how you end up with grammys Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts from the classic YouTube video, Bjork Talking About TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Our favorite direct-to-streaming releases include Palm Springs on Hulu, Let Them All Talk on HBO Max, and Mindhunter Season 2. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses art exclamation point you can find us on twitter at a million screens at midwest spitfire ben t travers and leo Garcia. you can also find us on apple podcast spotify google place so leave a review and let us know what you think if it's good we might read it on the air this is ben libby and leo remind you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you you shouldn't let poets lie to you ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.